1978, the writer Edward Said wrote Orientalism. He took the name of his book from a genre of painting in the late 19th century, early 20th century, in which the East was represented as luxurious and mysterious, all harems and skimpy veils and curiously mystic Sufis. This world that was so popular in painting, he took to be a representation that the West generally had of the East. Drawing upon the ideas of Michel Foucault, he used the concept of discourse, uh, that is to say, that the way we think and talk and describe and the way we communicate reveals the underlying power structures in our society. The powerful describe the weak, not the other way around. So the West describes the East in Orientalist mode. We've just lived through, experienced, the Olympics, a tremendous example of human ingenuity and individual skill. And yet it is within the context of a society, of a discourse that is, of Orientalism. That's our proposal. So welcome to this week's Spinoza Triad. ideas in his book Orientalism. I don't think they're massively yeah. difficult to understand. I mean, he, he's essentially no. taking a Foucault, Foucauldian kind of discourse and demonstrating how that operates. And he's saying we have in the yeah. West a discourse of the East. And I'm going to give it a label. I'm going to call it Orientalism. And immediately you hear that, it sort of reveals something about the way we think. We think, the West thinks. And I thought, well, you could apply that sort of symbolic understanding, that decoding, as it were, to something like the Olympics, you can apply it to an awful lot of things. You can apply it to, to, to a lot of popular culture. You can apply it to a lot, of, a lot of the way we represent the East. And you think, well, for a start, it struck me that the Olympics is revived in 1896. So they got the modern Olympics in 1896. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, revived by a guy called Pierre de Corbitain. And he's Baron Pierre de Corbitain. And you think, well, why, why in the late 19th century are Europeans, and there are very few countries in those days, this is the high tide of colonialism. So actually in the world, the, the British and French and Portuguese and Spanish empire, well, Spanish empire, it's gone in South America, but largely Africa is still colonized. Asia is still largely colonized. And in 1896, you try to re reach back in time to the ancient Olympics and sort of revive it in some way. They don't know much about the ancient Olympics. They have an idea about it. They have an idea that it's a sort of, it's going to bring world peace and it's about the communality of mankind. But it's also, sure. I think, about Western culture, isn't it? It's about establishing a sense of, the civ of what we think is civilization and what we think isn't civilization. John, I, th I, think, I think there in Orientalism, one of his points, Said's keen to say that really all Orientalism was or is, is an archive. It's a collection of stuff that through a Western observation are made about the other parts of the world and, and archived and collected. And as this knowledge is collected about other people, it's, this is the Foucault angle of it, 
is that there's a, there's an inherent power relationship of that because it is it's the West that's observing the other and starting to construct an identity for them, whereas the West remains neutral as, if you like, I don't know, the observer. Doesn't that shape the Western view of their own identity by viewing the other in this way? Doesn't that well, give a sense of superiority and yes, yes, that, as John said? Yeah. That's, and, and that's the point, I think, uh, is Said then looks at things like a lot of the art, pieces of art and literature from that period, and he sees that you had this, like you say, John, an idea. There was an idea of what they thought, the say, the East, um, anything you know, non-Western, as what they thought it should look like, mystical and, and seen from afar, and it had these yeah. extra discursive qualities, if you like, that were there. And really, it was very unscientific because it was just, it was then almost like um, it was just being layered on. So you had these representations, these images that were then taken to be truthful and then built upon. So this archive becomes very kind of mutated in the end. And it, it doesn't really have much to do with the, uh, uh, the original kind of observations, which in themselves were, were massively biased just on default of there being an archive in and of itself is somebody has to be doing the archiving. When you were saying there about forming this idea. Oh, yeah, the, of, uh, the, of the ancient Olympics. 1890, yeah, why revive it in 1896? Why then? So are you, are you saying that the West is, is treating the East as if they're outside of history? It's not changed by events and circumstances. It's always going to be the same. People well, are going to yeah. be consistently like well, it's, it's, They're it's not just, going to develop. Where, where John was saying about there was an idea of what they thought of as Greek, the games, it was, there was a sort of fan, fantasy dimension to it. I think it, yes. within Orientalism, there's a the similar kind of process. It's really about representation as much as it is. I mean, like, like, you know, many forms things are, but it's, it, yeah. it was about representation, an idealised version through an archive that was layered on. People didn't keep going out there. The, the idiosyncrasies of individual cultures and areas were just seen as over there. Stuart Hall talks about oh, the West together. and and the rest. So that we got the West and the rest is just all othered. The East becomes just a mass. It's excluded from history in the sense that it's excluded from the process of civilization. So the West is yeah. where history is happening. I mean, that's what that's one yeah. accusation we could have gone back to Hegel last time, couldn't we? Because said that Hegel's yeah. view of history is very much it's all it's all happening in Western Europe. If there is going to be an end of history or whatever, yeah. it's it's going to, it's happening in the industrial countries, it's happening in Germany, it's happening in, in Britain. How does the East fit into the process of civilization? And so in 1896, yeah. what they're saying is effectively is civilization started with the Greeks and it's coming to some sort of conclusion now. Or at least we are the curators of that history. And the rest of the world needs to fit into this, into, into this model. And this model is a West, is a Western model based, starts with the Greeks, evolves through the through the Renaissance, you know, evolves through the Middle Ages, sorry, revived in the Renaissance developed in the Industrial Revolution, the story of democracy, and here we are, the West. And so that story of the rise of the West, and as you say, Richard, and there's the, there's the West, and then there's the rest. And I think the Olympics fits in to a, to a symbolic, the symbolic othering of the, of the rest of the world, the symbolic othering of other, group, other cultures, of other minorities, of the non-West. It's, it's offering a, a view of what civilised behaviour is, that is post-colonial. It's, it's a kind of cultural imperialism. It's competitive, so you have to be competitive. It's about striving for modernity, for some sort of excellence. So that's the model for the East. It becomes a Western model 
of the way civilized behavior and the development of excellence should be. I think the, the first movement towards the modern Olympic was, I don't know if you heard of him, Evangelos, Evangelos Sapos, a Greek, a very wealthy Greek guy who kind of taken that idea. He wanted to reclaim the Olympics for Greece after Greece got independence from the Ottoman Empire in 1821. So it could be about national identity there and revival of national identity. So that sits in my what John's saying. So Zappos starts it. There had been a few other attempts at the revival of the Olympic Games. And the first one, which I found quite interesting, was in, uh, was in England, in Chipping Camden. It was called the Cots, Cotswold, <coughs> it was called the Cotswold Games, started by Robert Dover, 1612 to 1642. So it started in Chipping Camden, the revival of the Olympic Games. And I've actually, I've literally no been way. to Chipping Camden and seen the site where this, this sort of eccentric first Games was. And it's the most brilliant oh, right. uh, pub quiz piece of trivia. You know, because you get the question there. Where was the Olympic right. Games? Oh, 1896, you know. In a, no, 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 in Chipping Camden. <laughs> you're all... Chipping Camden. The Cotswold Games. So English, that. It's unbelievable, yeah. And then there was an attempt in... 1796 under revolutionary France, only two years where the metric system was introduced in sport. And then several attempts in, this, in the earlier 19th century until 1896. But yeah, Zappos is sitting nicely with what you're saying there. It's kind of national revivalism. I don't quite yeah. know what the Cotswold Games were for. Maybe it's just a bit of, a bit of fun. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, it, but it's all happening in the modern era, isn't it? It's happening from the sort of, um, with the early formation of period, nation yeah. states. And I think the you know, the nation states see yeah. themselves as as the Greek states sort of writ large. How are we going to avoid killing each other? So there's this idea about world peace. The Greeks avoided killing themselves. For, they didn't actually. They, it, it, of course, that's the other thing. The ancient Olympics didn't work as a means of of, of avoiding war. They didn't. The, yeah. the, the Greeks were continually fighting each other, so it didn't work. But anyway, so there's a sort of romantic idea that we should have played sport as nations and not fight each other. So there'd be world peace. But there's also the idea that the Greeks were the originators of Western civilization. And we all need to go back to that. We just skip over the Middle, you know, Middle Ages. And also the... the Dark uh, Ages. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's a bit like the, the insistence that the Greeks were white, insistence the Egyptians were white, you know, in the West. That, that rewriting mm. of history to make them... Germans in some way. I mean, in fact, the Germans even sent, I mean, one of the motivations for German archaeology in the night in the under the Nazis and before was to prove that the Greeks were somehow, in fact, Nazis, not Nazis, Germans. Right. And there are, yeah. you, know, you look around our cities everywhere. We see that the architecture of, of the classical age is an attempt to claim that mm. as us. The Greeks were somehow ended up in, in, in Chipping Camden. <laughs> <laughs> But the original Olympics was there to uh, worship Zeus. It's a religious ceremony, yeah, deeply religious ceremony. So, so that is all pushed to one side. Instead, it becomes a rational enlightenment sort of ceremony. The nation replaces God in the modern yeah. Olympics. Yeah. Like Durkheim's stuff around uh, collective experience and rituals and the sacred and the profound. Uh, you've got a, a sacred collective idea and, and the way in which 
the ritual itself holds together or binds together the, the collective, the group. Like you say, it doesn't really matter how you then project what, what, what it is you're projecting onto that ritual. I mean, it is curious, isn't it, the, the, how the Olympics has developed so much ritual. The carrying of torches. Very, yeah. very symbolic. The, the young person running up the steps, lighting things. Also, one thing that worries me about, not worries me about the Olympics, but observation of the Olympics, is how, how much they've been embraced by fairly authoritarian regimes. Any form of national identity like that, though, there, there has to be a kind of uh, historical dimension to that. In order to know us, we need to know our forefathers, and which teeters on the end of, edge of being extremely damaging if, if taken yeah. <laughs> if taken from the wrong position. I mean, really, if there was a moment in history to reevaluate the Olympics, it would be the 1936 Olympics, wouldn't it? It would yeah. be so, oh, yeah, so Hitler really loves the Olympics. Well, there's probably something a bit wrong the way we're doing this. <laughs> there's a sociological dimension to it, that kind of that, the idea around symbols fantasy and desire object you could say like you mentioned the torch john like the, mm. the torch it as an object itself is just a piece of whatever the metal with a light on the end of it you know it's, it's as an object but it has this entire fantasy dimension which encompasses all of the desires around that like achieving light and striving for greatness or you know winning and this yeah. fantasy that accompanies the idea of the Olympic Games, which goes back to, a, a, again, a kind of phantasmatic history. Mm. So you've got the, all of these symbols from a Lacanian point of view. You know, a, lot, a lot of them would be seen as the object cause of desire. For Lacan, the key point is that this fantasy mediates us from the reality of that it's just a torch. It's just some symbols. It's just they, they are, in effect, meaningless without, without the fantasy accompanying them. And we all engage with this. And I think like the Zizekian point of this would be is that there's a it's almost a projecting of our own inherent black or um, void, if you like, that objects function in this way, that, that our desire, human beings, we have to desire. We have. I'm using fantasy just in everyday speak. Fantasy means it's not real or it's not true. You need fantasy for reality to function. If, oh, yeah. if, you know, to, to, to know that who I am and I go to work on, you have to have a fantasy of who you are and what you are. Maybe narrative would be a better word, but I don't mean... They don't mean like a, a dream. It could be no. that, but it but it actually is a story. The athletes themselves will have an idea of what it would be like to win. The countries do. It has so many stories within it that, of different examples of this this object cause of desire. The whole thing works around. I mean, yes. even if you take this like Nike with the with the thing, just believe. You know, just do it. Just do what? <laughs> but just do it. You can do it. It's surprising in our rational, highly scientific age how much magic still remains. And of course, ritual is magic. Bells, books, candles, religious stuff, lighted torches, chanting, smells and bells, anything of that kind. Any kind of organised ritual takes the, the profane and turns it into the profound. It takes the profanity of ordinary life, the everyday stuff, the messed up, mixed up stuff of life, and turns it into something exciting, magical and extraordinary. 
in this sense, uh, the, one of the great magical pieces of nonsense that still exists in our culture is the idea that if you believe enough, you'll succeed. I'm absolutely certain that the people who come second, the people who come third, the people who didn't qualify to get into the Olympics, they didn't believe any less. <laughs> they, were, they were no less convinced of their brilliance. Chance, accident, complexity, all swept aside by ritual. These fantasies that we revolve around with the Olympics also gloss over or bread and circuses like the Frankfurt School thing. You know, you've got yeah. something's going yeah. on here, but in actual fact, it's masking something else. Because I mean, I remember the Beijing Olympics where they bulldozed. I think it was three hundred thousand homes were gotten rid of <laughs> yeah. just yeah. so they could put the games on. But again, this—I think the I mean, fantasy and ritual and symbol is worth un unpacking. I was going to say that symbolism and the, and fantasy are part of, mm. you know, I'll, I'll go very big here and say part of just ordinary human consciousness. I think it's how we understand the world is through symbolism and fantasy. The stories we tell yeah. about our ordinary experiences and the way yeah. we see the world. And the, the, the thing, the, 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 the fantasy and symbolism we attribute to objects and to our own mm. significant things in our lives. You see it in the Olympics. And the Olympics is a great collective fantasy. And I think you see some huge things about the West's fantasy of itself. And also yeah. the, fan the fantasy that we human beings individually have. I, there's a curious mm. sort of paradox, I think, in the Olympics, is that how parochial it is and how national. You're invited to celebrate Britain's achievement through the achievement of some bloke from Basingstoke who managed to get up every morning and swim a lot. Local <coughs> and parochial, and yet it's also national. Yes, so just building on that idea of, of fantasy, I mean, Lacan talks about the fundamental fantasy, which is a, which is an, a really deep-rooted, underpinning fantasy, which really shapes the way in which the subject engages with the world. And, and you might not be aware of it. You know, it's 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 at the sort of almost like the core of your being. So, um, and, you know, a nice example of this: uh, remember *Silence of the Lambs*. Yes. Hannibal Lecter and, and uh, Clarice <clears throat> and, and there's that bit where he's he's almost trying to psychoanalyze her and she's talking about the silence of the lambs she talks about the bit where she was uh, you know at night she was in this she could hear these lambs being uh, killed and one got away and she ran after the lamb trying to get the lamb so her dad doesn't kill it Hannibal Lecter says how um, he, he says about how you've been running for the rest of your life you were trying to hold something and that's why you went from this you know, small town girl to the FBI, and now you're still running after lambs, trying to protect them. And the point being is that something as far behind as a memory of that has worked as a fantasy, which has kind of structured the very the way you lived your life without you being fully aware of why. And I think some, in some ways, does the Olympics can be read like that? That the ideas of competition and overcoming these kind of narratives are are wired into the Olympics for various nation states as, as countries have evolved and, and changed the, the one thing, fantasy idea of, of, of the nation state and its proud history, but a history of somewhere that's competitive and overcoming. And that's really the, the narrative of the Olympic Games, isn't it? It's, it's not yeah. one of, of sharing things out and equality, is it? It's, 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 a, it's a long way from a kind of a communist version of reality. It's one that's based around, yeah, competition and the strongest survive. It's scarily, I think it's scarily Darwinistic in its kind of competition, survival of the fittest, fastest, yeah. strongest, highest, whatever the slogan of the Olympics is. I mean, I know that every Olympics will come up and say that there's all sorts of lovely 
kind of communality among the among the athletes and young people of the world coming together. And they'll try and reach back into the fantasy of it being a, of a model of world peace and harmony. Well, if it, yeah. if it was, a, you know, if it was revived in 1896, it hasn't really worked as a means of world peace and harmony in the last century. And it's been embraced by by fascist dictators and authoritarian regimes very much because underneath that is what you're saying, Richard, that the actual overwhelming message of the Olympics is about striving and competition and national victory. And to go back to Said, the defeat of the East, the defeat of the East by Western cultural imperialist ideas. The East's otherness, its sensuality, its exoticism is being pushed aside by by a rational striving for, it's all about numbers, isn't it? Every time you go to the Olympics, it'd be things like how many medals you've got, uh, um, how many numbers people have achieved at point oh of a mm. second above, point less of a second, you know, the, the world record that's been achieved or not or just been missed. It's the datering and numbering and rationalizing of human achievement, which is, yeah. I think it's seen as the West's victory over the East. I'm just cautious as well of being too critical. I also think it's, you know, it does a hell of a lot of good it's a critical reading that we're doing here. It, it also oh, yeah. has a lot of, a lot, a lot, you know, it means so much to, to so many, both in terms of watching it, but also to people involved in it. Is it also a site where meaning can be changed again? Is there a space for that, that narrative or that for uh, equality or yeah, yeah. to raise up? I don't doubt for a minute that when you see an athlete interviewed, and they say it's yeah. one of the greatest experiences of their lives. They all the, the communality among the athletes in the in the Olympic Village was genuine yeah. and real, and that the message of the great village of nations, the great community of nations, this one earth yeah. coming together, all that all that exists there, and I think yeah. it's very noble, very beautiful, and very real. And I think yeah. people and the guy that did get up every morning at six in the morning and go down to his local swimming pool and and so on that all that is real as well and they, they, there is yeah. tremendous individual achievement but it's individual it's not it's not communal it's individual nations it's individual people what you're saying there is something bringing people together it's just it, no no more so than the you know the marketplace brings people together yeah and i was going to say the you're talking about about orientalism there john you know with uh, you know western ideas and everything if you look at the kind of paradox and this it's the idea that coca-cola a very unhealthy drink uh, sponsored the Beijing Olympics, you know, so there's a it's kind of a Western corporatism pushing out any Eastern ideas, uh, Western capitalism, landing itself in the East, if you like, even though, of course, China is is fully involved in global capitalism. Yeah. I think I, I was going to say, I was kind of thinking that the Olympics has moved from, even though it celebrates nationhood and, you know, kind of individual success, is the backdrop to the Olympics now more corporate than, than nation. Uh, and if it wasn't for corporation, the Olympics might have disappeared back to Chipping Camden. Um, <laughs> we haven't talked about the influence of global capitalism and you know corporate corporatism uh, on the Olympics. And of course, the way global capitalism sells sells itself to us on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. yeah. It's the same as the Olympics. You Through know, the giving us objects a petty object, a that attaches a lifestyle around itself. You know, the transnational games could it end up, you know, the, with the the nation state dissolves, well, dissolves into sort of competitive transnationals. It could be yeah, the new games, a, couldn't it? Yeah, it's the Coca, yeah, it's the Coca Cola versus Microsoft games. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
certainly become a, a, a great spectacle of consumption. It's, it's a mask, isn't it? That somehow it's, it's the old um, Zizekian idea of people going into Starbucks and say and, and realizing the cup, the cup yeah. says for every cup of Starbucks you buy, you get there's a tree being planted somewhere or something. And you think, oh, it's that's all right. Then yeah. I can indulge in this wasteful Western luxury because uh, it's doing some good somewhere else. And you know, in a sense, that the Olympics does that. It says, you know, here is a great big, a, a corporate event. It's a media event, but it's doing good. Don't worry, it's doing good. It's about it's about world peace. And also, it's uh, the, the, the the fantasy. Mm. Another fantasy that's told about the Olympics every time it appears is that somehow it's going to inspire lots of ordinary people to get off their couches and go running. There's no evidence it's ever happened. <laughs> Yeah, the, Lon- yes. the London Games was going to be speak- a new golden age of British people participating in sport. Well, it didn't happen at all. There's no evidence that, that there was much participation. In fact, Britain's, Britain's medal success in the Olympics has been achieved through a very, really quite cynical process of finding people with any kind of brilliance in a sport and funding them to be full-time professionals in that sport. That worked really well. I mean, we got lots of medals. It doesn't mean that, that people in housing estates all over London... Going running and jumping and leaping. That thing you said there, John, that, that is keeping things from afar. It's, I think he calls that zoological ethics, doesn't he? Where you could you observe something mm-hmm. and you you have your involvement in it. You know, you see something, some advert. You know, if you just sponsor this, you know, two pounds to sponsor whatever the cause may be, um, that you feel good because you've given something to it. But and his point being that under <laughs> underpinning all of that. You know, it's it's a system itself. You just contribute to it, and it makes it. You you are contributing to the inequality just by observing yes. it. And, and I wonder if you have got like a zoological athletics there as well. So just by watching the people on the TV doing it, that's the reality. Oh yeah. If it's one thing to stop me exercising, it's sitting on the couch watching other people do it, <laughs> watching other people do it for me. It's like canned laughter, isn't it? I don't, I don't need to laugh; they're laughing for me. And it's a bit like that with your with your Olympics. Time to put my feet up and watch. Watch some fit people do things I should be. <laughs> yeah. Pass me another bottle of vino while I, yeah, while I watch yeah, these young, it, yeah. svelte people sprint down the thing. Yeah, or a can of Coke. Yeah, <laughs> a can of Coke, yeah. <laughs> can of Coke. <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah. And, you can, and, and it is very attractive. I mean, I, li- I, like, I like, all, like all sport. It doesn't take you five minutes watching anything from a boxing match to a football match to get sort of pulled into the to the drama of the event and the olympics yeah. is incredibly incredibly alluring it's you know the individual stories of people struggling and training and the, this is the greatest guy in the world who's beat this you know whatever whatever the narrative whatever the sort of stories attached they are very compelling stories i mean it's a very attractive and is is event. that though you know if if you if you're being if you're being very critical you could say well in a kind of underpinning way then if we, daniel were talking about capitalism and global capitalism and, and these kinds of things is is this is this a, a marxist ideology kind of thing whereby you're you're looking at we're looking at these images of you know everyone can overcome everyone with hard work yes. can achieve this stuff and we can just do this you can be That's like the good. olympic actor yeah and you keep going and 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 it's a base ideological level because it becomes an assumption you know you assume the athlete has worked very hard and can get you know definitely the the, the pinnacle of, of athleticism but you we're looking at the hard work dimension as opposed if somebody's just very good at something that it's internalized and, and that's what you need to do isn't it a, a good workforce needs to have the belief that hard work will overcome and you you will get your reward
At one point in my teaching career, uh, the school where I was teaching adopted a uh, marketing strategy and a new strap line, excellence, independence, opportunity. And they put it above the doorways and they put it all over things. They were sort of stenciled onto walls and it went on, it was on the wall of our, the literature and stuff of the school, excellence, independence, opportunity. And I thought, well, independence and excellence, if all three of those all sound really good, I mean, I wouldn't worry if someone says yeah. to me, you're excellent at something or you're very, you know, you, you can you seize your opportunities. They sound very good. But actually, another reading of those things is that they are part of the dominant ideology of our culture that fits exactly. neatly, in, neatly into a liberal capitalistic view of the world. For instance, in independence. It sounds great to be independent, but actually the, the whole, you know, I would say that we humans, the, the, the opposite of independence is dependence, and that sounds bad. But actually, that's a great characteristic of us humans is they were so massively dependent. I mean, I'm depending on all sorts of technicians that are currently operating some internet somewhere, someone in Sainsbury's today stacking the shelves. We are a deeply interconnected world of high dependence. And, it would, and, and that's why we're so successful as humans, is through dependence. And yet the message, the, the message, yeah. the message is independence, all the time, independence, individuality, achieve yeah. alone. Every athlete who achieves is achieved through some, the, the athletes acknowledge yeah. this. They'll say things like, I, I like to thank my mum or my family or, or the mm. training team that helped me. But the, the overwhelming Sports message to us is this person sports. did it alone. And can I also say that with, with any sporting endeavour, it's always a very simple story of winners and losers, which might fit in nicely with our yeah. view of Orientalism. Absolutely. It's, it's a very, very straightforward story that doesn't require any thought. And there's a lot of, as you, you're saying there, John, a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, things behind the sideline, sidelines which we don't understand or don't recognise the impact they're having on us. And so we just digest these kind of stories of winners and losers, um, yeah. which then yeah. shapes the way we might view our lives um, in, in the near future. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's, and it's, at that, it's at the ideological assumption level, isn't it? That these, yeah. these things are working at. It's just a take yeah. it for granted. We just assume, exactly. you don't even question it. That's, that's <laughs> I was, was going uh, been a bit mystified by sports. I'm not a huge sport fan, sports fan, but... Um, uh, why we spend so much time celebrating people for physical prowess when, uh, you know, the USP of our species is reason and thought. Because it's easier to bracket into winners and losers when you have a straightforward race, whereas something which might involve uh, mental achievements is more cumbersome and doesn't make great spectator viewing. But I, I've always been mystified by that as to why, as to why we, we celebrate physical prowess rather than mental Two, two things there. I think first off, if we say we're going to go down in the intellectual route, then we're, we're really playing into that orientalist trap again, because largely speaking, really, what we understand as a sort of Western academic, it, it, it is a Western academic canon, isn't it? The, 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 when we say about intellectual. There was huge uh, tranches of Chinese philosophy and in the East um, prior to, you know, or at the same time as the ancients yeah. in Greece. And that doesn't make any any headway at all in the Western view of the East. You know, we could challenge Orientalism by starting to study Chinese and Eastern philosophy in closer detail. That, wasn't, that, wasn't that Saeed's point though? I mean, Saeed was a professor of comparative literature, I think among other things, I mean, he was a, a fantastic academic, but he was interested in, you know, his, his sort of challenge to Orientalism was in that comparative literature, art, 
you know so again i, I would put in that compare you know comparative philosophy yeah. as as well i just yeah. i mean i less uh, critical of the sporting dimension than i think than you are. i think it is important i think i think it's important i mean as much as human beings are i mean this is, this is a, probably going off topic a little bit here but as as much as human beings are intellectual and um and like say john dependent on each other it's also we, we are competitive and sports and athleticism and all these things i think i think they do matter does that make i say this every podcast don't I? but does that make any sense <laughs> I, I just mean it is is within it within uh, the olympics is there a space for kind of uh, political awareness of the un- the inequalities that, that that are inherent to it. That's what I guess. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, I don't mean political as in I'm, I mean political in you know I don't know identity politics or national narratives being challenged. I, I don't know. Well, there was a very significant challenge to the sort of national narrative, nation states competitiveness of the Olympics at the 1968 Olympics in uh, Mexico City when John Carlos and Tommy Smith uh, raised a black gloved hand for uh, for black power and a protest against you know the assassination assassination of Martin Luther King and um, well you know and equates right to today to the black lives matter taking the knee women's football teams and other team other athletes took the knee at these olympics and that was accepted so in a sense the the reaction to the black um, to the black power protests of 1968 was to ban those athletes for life and be horrified and shocked shocked that this this thing this pristine thing so free of politics when it's actually saturated with politics of course there is a sort of um, uh, inverse ratio between the amount of the amount you assert a thing is politically free means it obviously is politically saturated the Olympics that is so political so ideological has always asserted itself as it's uh, as non-political. Anyway, in 1968, these, there was a big horrified reaction that politics should have dared to sully this highly political event. Whereas today, I mean, now there's, there's a degree of honesty. You know, Black Lives Matter taking the knee. Because if, if sport can't be a place for idealism and for protest about injustice, then what, where, where is there a better location for that? In fact, the Olympics should be a kind of fulcrum, a focus... Of um, of idealistic protest, and not this um, rather ridiculous fantasy that it's politically free, as if you should be politically free. Uh, sport has never been politically free. The Olympics is not politically free, as any as the boycotting of the, by the Russians and the boycotting by the Americans during the Cold War, and the tremendous amount of uh, cheating by the Russians today, cheating in the Russians in the past drug taking by countries, systematic cheating by all sorts of countries to get athletes to succeed in the Olympics shows just how significantly and political it really is. So let's have some good politics in the Olympics. That might challenge the narrative. Well, I think you could, you could, you could try and on, this, on, the, on, a, on one level, at the sort of level of the, of the Olympics itself and how it's, how it's operated, you could say, do you try and redesign it? You could say, let's it was formed in the late 19th century by competitive nation, essentially Western empires and nation states who wished to establish a, a fantasy of, of Greek yeah. origins of their culture and so on. You could say, well, maybe that, that's had its day. And the flag waving and the, pe- and the kind of vulgar nationalism of the Olympics, the, 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 the medals, oh. the, the celebration of first, second and third, but not the celebration of number four. I had a really sort of grim story uh, on the radio. There was a woman... 
who was an athlete in the in the Rio Olympics, and she'd been a British a British runner, and she'd well, I forget what she was eight hundred meters or something, and she'd come fourth by a hundredth of a second. So she'd got no, no medal. That's and she said, well, you know, I, I felt great because I got to the Olympics. How many people can say that? I came fourth in the Olympics final. Who can say that? I felt really great. But when I got on the plane to come home, we, the non-medal winners went into economy and the medal winners went into business. So she said, on the way home, I'm sitting next to the toilets right. on the plane, you know. And then when we got off at the other end, the medal winners had their own photos taken and the non-medal winners had to wait on the plane to come off later. And I thought... Yeah, yeah, that, that sort of that defeats the idea of it's not winning, it's taking part, which wasn't an original Olympic ideal. And it was a celebration of of the loser, as it were, is as much celebrated as the winner. Well, we've I think we've lost that to some degree. It's some of it's the media, the superficiality of the media that we you know it's so many gold. You hear it on the media, they say, thank today we won a gold. But our team in such and such swimming only managed a bronze. So I think you could redesign the Olympics to make it less brutally nationalistic I, I don't know if that'd work you yeah. know you know with, with as you're saying that I mean I, I was thinking about that idea um I'd read about it might have been actually Panishik in, in that one we discussed the other week but the idea of objective belief that in under postmodern conditions that belief now functions at the level of objectivity so uh, you can take something like a you know a Tibetan prayer wheel you know, you can do whatever you want. You just put the prayer in the wheel, spin it, and, and that'll do the praying for you. We kind of understand these inequalities. We understand what, you, what, the, what you're describing there, John, and we understand that's becoming more pronounced in a, even globally. But, but, it, but it doesn't matter. You know, we just believe in it anyway. You know, it, 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 it'll, it'll work out by itself. Because in order to actually challenge that, you would, it, you'd have to disrupt everything. No, you'd have, I mean, how, how could you, you couldn't have an Olympic Games without that, could you? I don't know. I mean, there, has, there, has to, there has to be a winner, there has to be a loser and celebrating, you know, there's a podium that someone stands at the front, you have the three positions. How, how much, for, how, how big a podium would you need? You know, if everyone's on it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it would have, have no point if there was no winners and losers. Yeah. If it was all it, just it, celebrating, taking part. It becomes meaningless, um, doesn't it? It isn't fair, but is competition fair anyway? Yeah. And if we have no standards, then everything becomes mediocre. But it's everyone. John, are, you everyone... Say, are you saying we still need winners and losers, but we need to treat the losers with more respect and dignity? Right. Yeah. Them? Probably, I'm saying Is that. that and, kind of I, what you're I, saying? and I absolutely take your point that you know, if you stand up in front of a group of of young people and you say you're all special, then no one's special. You know, you're all winners, yeah. and no one's a winner. But I think I think the flag waving. I think the, the, the league tables of nations, I mean, you could design it differently. And I, but it, going back to, Richard, what you were saying earlier about sport and the, the significance, I think sport is a very valuable human activity, <laughs> you know, and I don't yeah. think it's innate, yeah. it's innate within com competition for it to be um, uh, sort of symbolically bad. I don't I think you're right. I don't think, I suppose I don't want to be saying that competition as such is bad so <laughs> yeah and i'm having it both no, ways there, where do we go with that well i suppose i'm objecting to the difference between competition genuine competition and uh, and sham competition i think there's so much of the olympics so much of our culture is sham competition uh the idea that um continually pro pro the idea of uh, meritocracy 
you know, that, that uh, work hard and you'll succeed. Nothing about our society suggests that work hard and you'll succeed at all. Quite the reverse. Be privileged, be middle class, have all sorts of chance and advantages. That's how you'll succeed. It's mostly by accident, chance, sorry, unfairness, inequality that the people succeed. You can look at the Olympics and say that uh, it's in any way meritocratic or that anyone with great efforts can therefore succeed. It isn't that kind of thing at all. Uh, well, otherwise, the, wouldn't, the medals wouldn't be dominated by the rich countries. Nor, nor would the qualifications in this country be dominated by private schools and the middle classes. Uh, nor would all features of life, actually, largely, are deeply, deeply unfair. But the, the, the mask, the presentation, is that somehow that's not really true. And the Olympics, then, we can be reassured that in this world of grim unfairness and inequality, there's some beacon of model of, of fairness and equality. It's not true, it's a sham. How can we weave it back to Orientalism? I don't, I, you see, I, I don't know if it's uh, emphasised kind of inequality. I mean, clearly the, the, the same countries always win every year. Who, who won this year, actually? Who, who got the most medals? Uh, like USA. John, it's the, num the numbers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah USA. It, it, so, so the superpowers dominate because they, they have enormously more resources. And so it becomes a demonstration every four years of the where where the power lies sort of in the world. That's and, interesting. Uh, and it was, but it, but it, is that always the case? Is that always the case? Has well, any yeah. has any more minor country? It's always, been, it's always been Russia, the biggest, the Soviet Union, Russia, and America, China. That's Britain. Britain was up there once, you know, in the Empire days, but not much. Not much. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Twenty twelve, we did quite well, didn't we? Yeah, well, we the top medal winners in twenty twelve. We did, we did, when the, when the Olympics first sort of starts in the 19th century, Britain does quite well. But then, then when you come to the, I think the, the low point, I think it was something like the Atlanta Olympics, where, or where Britain got two medals or something. And they, and they, right. they, de they decided therefore to, you know, coinc coincidentally, the, the, the national lottery money is directed towards the purpose of I said, identifying almost anyone who shows any kind of skill in anything that's an Olympic sport. So they very, they very, you could say cynically or very strategically identify any young person who shows a certain excellence from skateboarding to whatever. <clears throat> if it's in the Olympics and you could win a medal in it, then you'll be, you, you're allowed to become full time in that sport. And you're given a lot of financial support. Right. So we've, we effectively state professionalize our athletes and Britain has shot up. The Americans do it because in America has a, a university okay. where they, where effectively any athlete who shows any kind of ability is professionalized by the university system. American college gets their tuition make, free. Make they get their tuition free, don't they? Yeah, in, in, the, in, yeah. in China, it's just the state does it. The state effectively has a program of identifying excellence and turning those people into. Right. I mean, hundreds of thousands of young Chinese people are filtered and filtered and filtered down until they find those ones who are good. Wow. With a, with a national enterprise of looking good every four That's years. That's interesting. Now, what, what happened? Didn't the Russians get busted for um, mass blood doping, was it? Or some blood doping, yeah. Mass doping, was it, yes. was it With the advances of science and nutrition and training and all the other stuff, is how fair is it when you've got other nation states obviously without the financial backing there i mean it, 
it's, it's almost obvious who's going to win his forehand anyway. Is it as fair for somebody from a country with nothing who's taking a performance enhancer versus someone that's come from an affluent country who's had nutrition and training advances? It's, I guess my point is, is that it, it isn't an even playing field, is it, in the slightest <laughs> okay. at all? I mean, that's quite obvious, uh, I'm guessing. But one of, the, one of the early fantasies of the Olympics was that they were all amateurs. And initially, right. you had to be an amateur. Yeah, and yeah. Professionalism wasn't yeah. allowed. And because professionalism so, was considered cheating, just as it was in rugby and in tennis for many, many years, professionalism was a form of cheating. And the ideal was known as the Corinthian, the Corinthian spirit, the Corinthian ideal, which was the ordinary citizens who are, did a bit of running, <laughs> ordinary citizens who could jump a lot, could go off to the Olympics and you'd get the, get the ideal of the citizen who just put down his, put down his plow, put down his spanner in the factory and went off and did some did some uh, running. Well, it was it was all it never was true right from the very beginning. They were either they were either upper class people from public schools or they were military people. And there, and there were examples in the early Olympics of, of plucky amateurs, but they tended to come from a certain class background. And anyway, they came from very privileged societies like the West, like Britain and the United States. Their privilege was, you know, was a gave every, every other nation a tremendous disadvantage. Nowadays, they're entirely professional. Or every is, is, link on to what you're saying there. I mean, is there a bit of scope that what we discussed the other week with uh, the Frankfurt School? Um, you know, the way in which competition then is given back to us under a guise of the whole point of competition that is fair. We know that it's not fair because it's because of well, basically the economic backing that's put into whichever nation state's going there. We know it's not fair, but but it's given back to us as a fair, open playing field. The competition is given, and we all acknowledge that it's we we know it's really not but we carry on in the guise that it's a fair competitive race could we say the same thing obviously that the way markets are organized as well the the the, the, od- the oddity of sport where where the power of the symbolism of that we place on sports is really really powerful i think when when a manchester united supporter or chelsea supporter or something goes and watches a a team of what are professional mercenaries they'll they'll play equally well for any team that hires them for for colossal sums of money yeah and yet point. identifies with them as if they were they were from chelsea or from manchester and does a Remember sort their of, own families. there's a curious connection that this is my local team we've always gone here and yet they watch professionals who have no real connection to them locally at all owned by a corporate organization or it's owned by a uh, a foreign owner that but simply and they're paid 30 grand a week yeah, yeah. And that, that, that came into a collision this summer, didn't it? You know, when, the, when there was an attempt to create a Super League for purely mercenary international marketing mm-hmm. reasons. And there was a, there was a realisation that like the mask suddenly fell and the, the people who went there every week seeing as their local club and their supporting mm-hmm. club and so on, some part of their community, realised mm-hmm. it was not at all that thing. It was, yeah. it was a brutal commercial fantasy organisation for making money. Which is what the Olympics might be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah. Is it the thing is is it is it national or is it corporate? That's my question. As a fantasy, or is it both? We talk about the free market as if it's free in order for it to function, uh, and that's part of the necessary ideology of, of discussion of markets. But we all know quite clearly that markets are rigged and are never fair due to monopolisation and you know uh, 
essential resources being not meted out equally. So, so it's, it's a necessary illusion to believe in free markets. Perhaps like we're talking about with the Olympics, it's a necessary illusion to think yes, about. That's uh, a great point. Yeah. Being yeah. free and fair between athletes. Yes, interesting that, isn't it? it, 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 it it's ideology, isn't it? If, yeah. if this form of competition is fair, then as a model of our society, it's all fair. <laughs> So we, we are the greatest society, you know, even, even though everything, and so everything which is uh, problematic about the West is shoveled under the carpet in order for that yeah. necessary fantasy, as Richard calls it, the petty object A, to continue. Yeah. The <laughs> fantasy of striving and success and the fantasy of we can all become, we can all become anything we, we can, want. We can all become president, yeah. We can all become president, we can all become millionaires. Yeah. But, but, I, but ideology... It's more subtle than that because people aren't stupid and, 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 know, and know that it's not fair. So, you know, the, I'm thinking here, you know, when you look at like this, how, I know that it's rigged, you know, and it's the same with the markets. Now, I know that it's not fair, but all the same, just carry on doing it. I love that quote. I think it's just where it says, you know, ideology allows you to do anything you want right up to the point of doing it. You know, That's good you'll, you'll just carry on doing it. We carry on contributing to global markets, knowing that there's massive inequality and exploitation, but we don't. Just don't worry, just but all the same, you know, just carry on doing it. So I, I think that what you're saying is absolutely right, Dan. But and I think but I think people know that, but all the same, we'll just carry on contributing to it anyway. And that's a bit like I think Zizek's point with where you said earlier, uh, John, you were talking about the the coffee cup example there, you know, that it keeps at a distance unless you actually approach the underlying inner neoliberal kind of markets, it, nothing will change. It won't. And you're you're almost contributing to it by engaging with it. But mm. I, my, my point there with ideology is I, I, I agree, Dan, but I actually think people know that. We already know. You know the Olympics, aren't, it's not fair. But all the same, it still goes on and we still act as though it is. But fantasy allows, the, allows this, this, this nonsense But, but, but the fantasy is, is, is not one of just reality and, 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 and some fake, you know, there's some fake thing and, and then there's reality. It's the merged. Fantasy is so part it, of it, 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 it allows... Fantasy is part of it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and it, and it's, a bit, it's a bit like the Hegel stuff from last week. You know, it's the contradiction is, is, is already internal to it. We know it's not fair. Yeah. But all the same, we just carry on as though it were. <laughs> yeah, we have yeah. to embrace the contradiction in order yeah. for it to continue. Yeah. yeah, and we and we yeah. recognise the, the, the some part of the reality in it. So when, when the Olympics are olympics addresses you and says you 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 can achieve if you, if you turn to your children and you say something like you know try to you know, achieve your best in life reach high you're not saying something wrong mm. that that is a fair old aspiration that's fairly good i mean every great scientist or great sportsman or anything exactly. in life, there is certainly a truth and a very profound truth in the olympics just, that is inspiring i just thought about how is it homer simpson where he says we sort of bar and he says don't have any goals, aim low and you'll never be disappointed. <laughs> I think that'd be, that'd be a slogan slogan for uh, a, a fair Olympics. I'd like everyone to aim. Uh, yeah. yeah. What you, would you the world be, be like if we followed his yeah. advice? Embra embrace mediocrity. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, not, not last thought, whatever, whatever. Well, I've, another thought is that with this idea of, of, of the Olympics being a Western sort of symbolic enterprise, and within that is an idea of defeat of the East. I think within, within its defeat of the East, you get the idea also of the 
defeat of the East, which is in the Orientalist binary opposite. The Orientalism is physical, it's sensual, it's of the body. And we in the West, it's the, it, it's the, the victory of the Olympics is the victory over the body. People have to discipline themselves. They have to go to gyms, they have oh, to run, they have to overcome mm. pain. And the East is a place where there is ill, ill discipline of the body. It's, all sort of, it's, it's when they go off to India and there's all sorts of unpleasant texts about how to have sex in exotic manners. And there's, there's carvings on statues, carvings on temples of people engaging in sexual activity. And there's the, the, the idea of the, the one thing about the East and Oriental East was its unrestrained sexuality, its unrestrained physicality. Whereas the British, it was all cold yeah. showers, stiff upper lips, and, uh, and don't enjoy sex except yeah. for the production of children. And, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and lie back, Martha, and think of England. <laughs> We're going to have to produce some children, Martha. <laughs> Uh, interesting. I may be, I may be indulge, indulging some disgustingness tonight. <laughs> interesting idea. So yeah, physical, discipline over physical discipline. There's a physical discipline. The defeat of restraint. the defeat of the East and its sensual physicality throughout through our Western discipline. Yeah. And Sai talks about that, doesn't it, within the language? The, the, when he talks about the Western language and Eastern, he, he does use those binary opposites, doesn't he, John? Yeah, you know, of sort of an extra discursive East with sort of spirituality, sexualized, <laughs> mystical, as opposed to rational. So it's, mm. yeah, it's quite an interesting point. With the the way black athletes are presented, and, yeah. uh, and the way black athletes in sports other than the Olympics are presented, is with a way of which you can contain a kind of idea of blackness is now been and it's controlled and it's under, understood. It's those kind of assumptions, which I think is the persistence of Orientalism. I was going to add on, on top of that, just in terms of the commentary of recent Olympics, when looking at Chinese athletes, the same Orientalist uh, commentary starts appearing. Like you hear about, you know, Chinese are looking inscrutable and they're, they're looking very cold, that they're all looking you know, as if they're hard to read, which is a, a kind of yeah. typical trope really rather than saying that these are individual people who are taking part as individuals in this competition we suddenly see it start to see national characteristics or stereotypes yeah. you have been listening to the spinoza triad dr richard miller dan rowlands and myself john gibbs I hope you enjoyed our discussion and our exploration of the ideas of Edward Said as we saw them apply to the Olympics. If you wish to comment or suggest other podcasts we might discuss, or topics we might discuss indeed, then please leave comments or send me an email in the email address attached. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please listen again and to our previous podcasts.